Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast from a leftist and I read things. Today we're beginning a new book, and this is going to be an unusual one in a couple of ways. The book we are reading will be The Worldview and Philosophical Methodology of Marxism-Leninism. It is a first book in a four-part curriculum used in Vietnamese schools to teach people about Marxism-Leninism from the ground up. In some ways, I expect this will kind of retread and resummarize stuff we have covered, but it is so modern, I think it comes from a context that is interesting to look at as a way to reappraise the communist movement of the past and how it worked through and how it exists in the modern day because it is written in a post-Soviet Union collapse world and it is written to reflect the state of the world of how communism is considered in that context. I won't do this every time, but I specifically want to shout out this is translated by Luna Nguyen, which I hope I have pronounced correctly, and it is the first of four books. This is the only one translated so far. If you want to support translating, and I recommend you continue to support this translation effort, you can purchase this book, support them, all sorts. I will give a link to the site where this all is, but if you go to banyanhouse.org, that's B-A-N-Y-A-N, you'll find it pretty easily there. The first one is for sales, both in ebook form and in print form, and your donations will contribute to further translation efforts which are ongoing. You can also, from there, get a link to a free version of the book on archive.org, which is in various formats too. Needless to say, I would probably be up for reading part two once that's done, but we'll take it one book at a time for now. Lastly, one unusual note for this is this book is extremely heavily annotated. I'm talking about there are sections where there are pages for an annotation that is added in translation to give additional context or insight to something that may not be obvious to a reader from outside Vietnam. For the moment, at least for now, I am recording those. I may change my approach as time goes on, but they are a massive amount of the content of the chapters. And I think at least for this opening section, the, the annotations have been a huge help and have been very useful. For the sake of clarity, I will refer to citations still as footnotes, and if I refer to annotations, I am actually talking about the audio ones that at least for the moment I am reading out. Uh, those will not be in the show notes because they would be excessively long to put in the show notes and probably wouldn't fit. But I will be reading them. As always, I have timestamps in the description of the episode to indicate different sections you can jump to, but I will also be using those for the beginning and end of annotations if you ever want to skip ahead, if you don't need context for anything in particular. With all that set up, which I promise I will not do every one of these episodes, let's get started. Introduction to the Basic Principles of Marxism-Leninism 1. Brief History of Marxism-Leninism 1. Marxism and the Three Constituent Parts 
Marxism-Leninism is a system of scientific opinions and theories which were built by Karl Marx, footnote 1, and Friedrich Engels, footnote 2, and defended and developed by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, footnote 3. Marxism-Leninism was formed and developed by interpreting reality as well as building on preceding ideas. It provides the fundamental worldview and methodology of scientific awareness and revolutionary practice. It is a science that concerns the work of liberating the proletariat from all exploitative regimes with the ambition of liberating all of humanity from all forms of oppression. Marxism-Leninism is made up of three basic theories which have strong relationships with each other. They are philosophy of Marxism-Leninism, Marxist-Leninist political economics, and scientific socialism. Philosophy of Marxism-Leninism studies the basic principles of the movement and development of nature, society, and human thought. It provides the fundamental worldview and methodology of scientific awareness and revolutionary practice. Based on this philosophical worldview and methodology, Marxist-Leninist political economics studies the economic rules of society, especially the economic rules of the birth, development, and decay of the capitalist mode of production, as well as the birth and development of a new mode of production, the communist mode of production. Scientific socialism is the inevitable result of applying the philosophical worldview and methodology of Marxism-Leninism, as well as Marxist-Leninist political economics, to reveal the objective rules of the socialist revolution process, the historical step from capitalism into socialism, and then communism. Annotation 1. The word science, and by extension scientific, in Marxism-Leninism has specific meaning. Friedrich Engels was the first to describe the philosophy which he developed with Marx as scientific socialism in his book Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. However, it should be noted that the English phrase, scientific socialism, comes from Engels' use of the German phrase wissenschaftlich socialismus. Wissenschaft is a word which can be directly translated as knowledge craft in German, and this word encompasses a much more broad and general concept than the word science as it's usually used in English. In common usage, the word science in English has a relatively narrow definition, referring to systematically acquired objective knowledge pertaining to a particular subject but Wissenschaft refers to a systematic pursuit of knowledge, research, theory, and understanding. Wissenschaft is used in any study that involves systematic investigation, and so scientific socialism is only an approximate translation of Wissenschaftlich Socialismus. So, scientific socialism can be understood as a body of theory which analyzes and interprets the natural world to develop a body of language which must be constantly tested against reality, with the pursuit of changing the world to bring about socialism through the leadership of the proletariat. Even though these three basic theories of Marxism-Leninism deal with different subjects, they are all parts of a unified scientific theory system. The science of liberating the proletariat from exploitative regimes and moving toward human liberation. 2. Summary of the birth and development of Marxism-Leninism, 
there have been two main stages for the birth and development of Marxism-Leninism. One, stage of formation and development of Marxism, as developed by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Two, stage of defense and developing Marxism into Marxism-Leninism, as developed by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. A. Conditions and premises of the birth of Marxism. Annotation 2. The following sections will explain the conditions which led to the birth of Marxism. First, we will examine the social-economic conditions which led to the birth of Marxism, and then we will examine the theoretical premises upon which Marxism was built. Later, we will also discuss the impact which 18th and 19th century advances in natural science had on the development of Marxism. Social Economic Conditions Marxism was born in the 1840s. This was a time when the capitalist mode of production was developing strongly in Western Europe on the foundation of the Industrial Revolution, which succeeded first in England at the end of the 18th century. Not only did this Industrial Revolution mark an important step forward in changing from handicraft cottage industry capitalism into a more greatly mechanized and industrialized capitalism, it also deeply changed society. And, above all, it caused the birth and development of the proletariat. Annotation 3. Marx saw human society under capitalism divided into classes based on their relation to the means of production. Means of production are physical inputs and systems used in the production of goods and services, including machinery, factory buildings, tools, and anything else used in producing goods and services. Capitalism is a political economy defined by private ownership of the means of production. Within the framework of dialectical materialism, all classes are defined by internal and external relationships. Chiefly, classes are defined by their relations to the means of production and to one another. The proletariat are the working class, the people who provide labor under capitalism, but who do not own their own means of production, and must therefore sell their labor to those who do own means of production, the bourgeoisie. As the owners of the means of production, the bourgeoisie are the ruling class under capitalism. According to Marx and Engels, there are other classes within the capitalist political economy. Specifically, Marx named the petty bourgeoisie and the lumpen proletariat. Marx defined the petty bourgeoisie as including semi-autonomous merchants, farmers, and so on, who are self-employed, own small and limited means of production, or otherwise fall in between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. In the Manifesto of the Communist Party, Marx described the petty bourgeoisie as, quote, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie, and ever renewing itself as a supplementary part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition, and, as modern industry develops, they even see the moment approaching when they will completely disappear as an independent section of modern society, to be replaced in manufactures, agriculture, and commerce by overlookers, bailiffs, and shopmen. End quote. Vietnam's textbook of history for high school students gives this definition of the petty bourgeoisie in the specific context of Vietnamese history. Quote, the petty bourgeois class includes intellectuals, scientists, and small business owners, 
handicraftsmen, doctors, lawyers, and civil servants. The vast majority of contemporary intellectuals before the August Revolution of 1945, including students, belonged to the petty bourgeoisie. In general, they were also oppressed by imperialism and feudalism, often unemployed and uneducated. The petty bourgeoisie were intellectually and politically sensitive. They did not directly exploit labour. Therefore, they easily absorbed revolutionary education and went along with the workers and peasants. However, the intelligentsia and students often suffer from great weaknesses, such as theory not being coupled with practice, contempt for labour, vague ideas, unstable stances, and erratic behaviour in political action. Some other petty bourgeoisie, scientists and small businessmen, freelancers, etc., were also exploited by imperialism and feudalism. Their economic circumstances were precarious, and they often found themselves unemployed and bankrupt. Therefore, the majority also participated in and supported the resistance war and revolution. They are also important allies of the working class. In general, these members of the petty bourgeoisie had a number of weaknesses self-interest, fragmentation, and a lack of determination. Therefore, the working class has a duty to agitate and spread propaganda to such members of the petty bourgeoisie, organize them, and help them to develop their strong points while correcting their weaknesses. It is necessary to skillfully lead them, make them determined to serve the people, reform their ideology, and unite with the workers and peasants in order to become one cohesive movement. Then, they will become a great asset for the public in resistance, war, and revolution." End quote. Marx defined the lumpen proletariat as another class which includes the segments of society with the least privilege, most exploited by capitalism, such as thieves, houseless people, etc. In the Manifesto of the Communist Party, Marx defined the lumpen proletariat as the dangerous class, the social scum, the passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society. Marx did not have much hope for the revolutionary potential of the lumpen proletariat, writing that they, quote, may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepared far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. End quote. Political Theories, an official journal of the Ho Chi Minh National Institute of Politics, discussed the lumpen proletariat in the specific context of Vietnamese revolutionary history. Quote, it should be noted that Marxism-Leninism has never held that the historical mission of the working class is rooted in poverty and impoverishment. Poverty and low standards of living make workers hate the regime of capitalism and causes disaster for workers, but the basic driving force behind the revolutionary struggle of the working class lies in the very nature of capitalist production and from the irreconcilable contradiction between the working class and the bourgeoisie. Moreover, it should not be conceived that a class is capable of leading the revolution because it is the poorest class. In the old societies, there were classes that were extremely poor and had to go through many struggles against the ruling class, but they could never win and keep power, 
and did not become the ruling class of society. History has proven that the class that represents newly emerging productive forces, which are able to build a more advanced mode of production than the old ones, can lead the revolution and organize society into the regime they represent. Fetishizing poverty and misery is a corruption of Marxism-Leninism. The very existence of the lumpen proletariat is strong evidence of the inhumane nature of capitalist society, which regularly recreates a large caste of outcasts at the bottom of society. End quote. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, millions of Vietnamese people were forced to leave their homes in rural farmlands to work for plantations and factories which were owned by French colonialists. These workers were functionally enslaved, being regularly physically abused by colonial masters, barred from any education whatsoever, and receiving only the bare minimum to survive. As a result, under French colonial rule, about 90% of Vietnamese were illiterate, and the French aimed to indoctrinate Vietnamese people into believing that they were inferior to the French. The French colonialists also worked with Vietnamese landlords to exploit peasants in rural areas. Those peasants received barely enough to survive and, like the plantation slaves, were prohibited from receiving education. Because Vietnamese peasants and colonial slaves composed the majority of workers while being so severely oppressed and living in conditions of such abject poverty, it was difficult to fully distinguish between the proletariat and the lumpen proletariat in Vietnam during the colonial era. During this time, Ho Chi Minh and other Vietnamese communists developed the philosophy of proletarian piety. The word piety here is a translation of the Vietnamese word hu, which originally comes from the Confucianist philosophy of filial piety. Filial piety demanded children to deeply respect, honor, and obey their parents. Through the concept of proletarian piety, Ho Chi Minh adapted this concept to proletarian revolution, calling for communists to deeply love, respect, and tirelessly serve the oppressed masses. This philosophical concept sought to unite the proletariat, lumpen proletariat, and petty bourgeoisie into one united revolutionary class. Even some feudal landlords and capitalists, who were themselves oppressed by the colonizing French, were willing to fight for communist revolution and were welcomed into the revolutionary movement if they were willing to adhere to the principle of proletarian piety. The working class and peasantry would lead the revolution, the more privileged classes would follow, and all communist revolutionists would serve the oppressed masses through sacrifice and struggle. During this period, many novels were written and circulated widely, which featured main characters who were members of the lumpen proletariat or enslaved by the French, such as B. Va. The story about a beautiful peasant girl who was forced to become a thief in the city, and Chi Fiao. The story of a peasant who worked as a servant in a feudal landlord's house who was sent to prison and became a destitute alcoholic after being released. The purpose of these stories was to show the cruelty of the colonialist capitalist society of Vietnam in the 1930s and to inspire proletarian piety. 
including empathy and respect for the extreme suffering and oppression of the lumpen proletariat, peasantry, and colonial slaves. These stories also presented sympathetic views of intellectuals and members of the petty bourgeoisie. For instance, in the novel Lao Hak, the son of a peasant leaves to work for a French plantation and the father never sees him again. The aged peasant becomes extremely poor and sick without the support of his son, and the only person in the village who helps him is a teacher, representing the intellectual segment of the petty bourgeoisie. The writers of these novels were communists who wanted to promote the principles of proletarian piety. Rather than looking down on the most oppressed members of society, and rather than sowing distrust and contempt for the petty bourgeoisie, Vietnamese communists inspired solidarity and collaboration between all of the oppressed peoples of Vietnam to overthrow French colonialism, feudalism, and capitalism. Proletarian piety was crucial for uniting the divided and conquered masses of Vietnam and successfully overthrowing colonialism. Note that these strategies were developed specifically for colonial Vietnam. Every revolutionary struggle will take place in unique material conditions. Footnote 4. And the composition and characteristics of each class will vary over time and from one place to another. It is important for revolutionists to carefully apply the principles of dialectical materialism and materialist dialectics to accurately analyze class conditions in order to develop strategies and plans which will most suitably and efficiently lead to successful revolution. The deep contradictions between the socialized production force and the capitalist relations of production were first revealed by the economic depression of 1825 and the series of struggles between workers and the capitalist class which followed. Annotation 4. In Marxism, socialization is simply the idea that human society transforms labor and production from a solitary, individual act into a collective social act. In other words, as human society progresses, People socialize labor into increasingly complex networks of social relations, from individuals making their own tools, to agricultural societies engaged in collective farming, to modern industrial societies with factories, logistical networks, etc. The production force is the combination of the means of production and workers within any society. The socialized production force, therefore, is a production force which has been socialized. That is to say, a production force which has been organized into collective social activity. Under capitalism, the socialized production force consists of the proletariat, or the working class, as well as means of production which are owned by capitalists. Marx and Engels defined relations of production as the social relationships that human beings must accept in order to survive. Relations of production are, by definition, not voluntary, because human beings must enter into them in order to receive material needs, in order to survive within a given society. Under capitalism, the relations of production require the working class to rent their labor to capitalists to receive wages which they need to procure material needs like food and shelter. This is an inherent contradiction because a small minority of society, the capitalist class, 
own the means of production while the vast majority of society, the working class, must submit to exploitation through wage servitude in order to survive. Examples of such early struggles include the resistance of workers in Lyon, France in 1831 and 1834, the Chartist movement in Britain from 1835 to 1848, the workers' movement in Silesia, Germany, in 1844, etc. These events prove as historical evidence that the proletariat had become an independent political force which pioneered the fight for a democratic, equal, and progressive society. Annotation 5 Here are some brief descriptions of the early working class movements mentioned above. Resistance workers in Lyon, France in 1831 in France, due to heavy exploitation and hardship, textile workers in Lyon revolted to demand higher wages and shorter working hours. The rebels took control of the city for 10 days. Their determination to fight is reflected in the slogan, Live Working or Die Fighting. This resistance was brutally crushed by the government, which supported the factory owners. In 1834, silk mill workers in Lyon revolted again to demand the establishment of a republic. The fierce struggle went on for four days, but was extinguished in a bloody battle against the French army. About 10,000 insurgents were imprisoned or deported. The Chartist Movement in Britain Chartism was a working-class movement in the United Kingdom which rose up in response to anti-worker laws such as the Poor Laws Amendment of 1834, which drove poor people into workhouses and removed other social programs for the working poor. Legislative failure to address the demands of the working poor led to a broadly popular mass movement which would go on to organise around the People's Charter of 1838 which was a list of six demands which included extension of the vote and granting the working class the right to hold office in the House of Commons. In 1845, Karl Marx visited Britain for the first time, along with Friedrich Engels, to meet with the leaders of the Chartist movement, with whom Engels had already established a close relationship. After various conflicts and struggles, Chartism ultimately began to decline in 1848 as more socialist-oriented movements rose up in prominence. Workers' Movement in Silesia, Germany In June 1844, disturbances and riots occurred in the Prussian province of Silesia, a major centre of textile manufacturing. In response, the Prussian army was called upon to restore order to the region. In a confrontation between the weavers and troops, shots were fired into the crowd, killing 11 protesters and wounding many others. The leaders of the disturbances were arrested, flogged, and imprisoned. This event has gained enormous significance in the history of the German labour movement. In particular, Karl Marx regarded the uprising as evidence of the birth of a German workers' movement. The Weavers' Rebellion served as an important symbol for later generations concerned with poverty and oppression of the working class in German society. It quickly became apparent that the revolutionary practice of the proletariat needed the guidance of scientific theories. The birth of Marxism was to meet that objective requirement. In the meantime, the revolutionary practice itself became the practical premise for Marxism to continuously develop. 
And that is going to do it for this week. A short episode, especially if you skipped any of those annotations, but uh, it was tough to find a good break point, so I'll keep this one short. Next one we'll dive further through this chapter of setup. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Especially, of course, the format of this episode being different to being a bit different to the norm. I'm welcome to any feedback about that. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping and support the network there to get lots of other bonus shows. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.